You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 45. Today we're asking the question, why do we need complex models to explain simple work? Let's get started. Hey everybody, I'm Drew Ray, that guy over there is Dave Proven, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. As we record this week, the lights are back on at the lab, and I taught my first on-campus class yesterday. How are things with you, David? Well, Drew, I'm presently in Melbourne in stage four COVID lockdown, so not allowed out of my house. So I really couldn't tell you what time it is, let alone what day it is, and although the lights are on, so it must be in the evening, where... A few weeks in front of our recording, so, you know, I hope that things are better by the time our listeners are hearing this. Andrew, we've now got about a thousand regular listeners and from more than 80 countries. So many of our listeners are likely to be doing it much tougher than the both of us. So from us, we really hope that your families are safe safe and well and, um, you know, you're able to take care of yourself at this, this, you know, really challenging time. Yeah, absolutely, David. I second that. The paper we're going to look at this week is representative of a subfield of safety research that uses modelling techniques to describe work situations. So the paper itself is pretty interesting, but David, I thought we might take a little bit in advance to talk a bit about sort of modelling techniques in safety, particularly the way we use them in education and in research and in practice. So a couple of big techniques people may have heard of, FRAM and STAMP. David, have you used any of those sort of techniques in your own work, either as a researcher or as a practitioner? Yeah, Drew, I have actually. I used uh, FRAM when some of our listeners might be familiar with a paper that we wrote titled Safety to Professionals, How Resilience Engineering Can Transform Safety Practice. And it's available open access and um, we'll get around to talking about it on the podcast at some point. But I've actually got a working FRAM file for that paper, Drew, because it was based for me on the idea that safety professionals perform a whole range of functions. Um, or activities in an organization to create certain states or certain outputs in the organization and also to respond to certain situations or inputs. And, you know, these require resources, certain preconditions to be in place for them to be effective and certain uh, feedback loops and so on. You know, it it actually worked okay. It it probably wasn't right, but it really forced me when I was thinking about, you know, the, the role of safety professionals within this organizational system and the functions they performed. It really made me think about it in a more integrated way than I might otherwise without actually trying to trying to put it into a model. Yeah, I, I haven't used FRAM in anger at all. I've done a fair bit of teaching, particularly when we're teaching people about accident analysis and comparing different methods. I often get students to apply STAMP. I think it's just a fairly useful way of encouraging people to think about accidents in a slightly more sophisticated way. And I find it useful sometimes when I'm going through an accident myself to draw a bit of a stamp diagram to help me understand the different parts and how the parts fit together. So the history of FRAM is kind of interesting. Most big name safety authors like to, at least at some stage in their career, invent some sort of big metaphor for modelling accidents. Listeners might not know that James Reason actually had a couple of bites of the cherry. You will have heard of his Swiss cheese model. But he also invented this other thing called vulnerable system syndrome, which never really caught on. Uh, Obviously, uh, Nancy Leveson has the systems theoretic accident models and processes stamp. Uh, Charles Perrault had normal accidents. 
uh, Snook had practical drift. And so Fram is Eric Holnagel's version of that. So just just here, Drew, I might just say that when we're talking about models here and, and modeling work, you know, people might even in their own organizations be familiar with just with using things like flowcharts, you know, or, or diagrams, you know. And so a flowchart would be probably a, a more you know, linear model that this step happens, then this step happens, then this step happens when a job happens, when a job gets done. I think most of our work method statements and job safety analysis or our standard operating procedures actually operate like that flowchart type of model. So when we're talking about FRAM today, FRAM's just, you know, a more dynamic and more complicated, you know, diagram of how work, you know, of, of the relationships between certain activities in a piece of work. Yes, yeah, so, so all of these techniques, they have some sort of diagram and then they have some sort of underlying metaphor or theory about how things link together that explain what the boxes and arrows mean in the organisation. And the usual path these things follow is they start off as a new way of explaining accidents and the author will present an accident and show a couple of diagrams using their new technique. And then that will evolve fairly naturally into an investigation technique and people will use the technique to investigate accidents. And then they'll evolve into techniques that are supposed to help you understand and improve a system before an accident happens. And that's the same path that FRAM followed. If you're wondering what FRAM stands for, it actually stands for multiple things because it was originally called Functional Resonance Accident Model because it comes out of this idea of explaining accidents. And Holnagel's idea was that systems are made up of functions, and functions are all interconnected in various ways, and those interconnections between the functions vibrate in response to internal or external disruptions. So the idea is if the system is well designed, the vibrations get absorbed and gradually fade away and the system's back to a normal state. If the system's designed with the feedback incorrectly, then the vibrations reinforce each other, you have resonance, and the disruption, rather than fading away, it swells until the system breaks. So if you think of that just as a really loose metaphor, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's what resilience engineering is all about. A resilient system can handle disruption and get back to normal, whereas a brittle system, when it gets disrupted, it breaks. But don't think about the idea of resonance too hard, because if you like, take it literally and look up what resonance is and how it works. The idea, as it's explained in Fram, is really kind of bonkers. There's something about the idea of vibrations and resonance that turns people who in their own field are genius into like weird pseudoscience. Nikola Tesla did this too. You know, fantastic electronics inventions. And once he started talking about vibrations and frequencies, his stuff just got totally bonkers. So Drew, so Fram is now commonly kind of called by Eric and others as the functional resonance analysis method to you know be used to describe a system um, or, or any system or an activity or a and it gets used for, for modeling systems in their normal state, like I said, instead of explaining accidents. So in a frame diagram, just so that our, our listeners can have a picture of what it looks like, every function of a system is, is a hexa, hexagon. And every vertex of that hexagon stands for a different way that, you know, this function can be connected with the next function. So the six sort of vertices are labeled time, control, preconditions, input, output, resources. So you might have, you know, one function, and that becomes an input to the next function. And then the output of that function becomes a resource for the next function and so on. And so you get all of these core functions in a system and you, you design the way that they relate and are interconnected to each other. And there's certain system states that get labeled, you know, on the arrows between the, the functions, if you like. Um, and then it lets you talk about interrelationships. So you can say, okay, so if this function's 
time is delayed so it's running late. It's then going to feed into the next task and it's going to make it not function as well. Or you know, this function can't start until this other function has finished. Or this function, if it's late, is going to take up resources from this other function. So if you imagine that any vertex on any function can be connected to any other vertex on any other function. So these are not going to be neat diagrams. Your real practical fram diagrams look like these weird piles of spaghetti. Or if you're in the engineering space, if you've ever seen like a circuit board that's wired up, with you know, done, done properly by real engineers who don't use right angles. So they just connect the wires in curvy ways, which is genuinely better for signal propagation, but looks like an absolute rat's nest. Andrew, what I might do is when we publish this this episode on LinkedIn, I might paste in the first couple of comments some example FRAM diagrams. I'll paste the one out of this article, but there's also another good article I know using um, FRAM to analyse the operations of a tugboat in a busy Scandinavian uh, harbour. And that is something that even on an A1 piece of paper is something that you just could not make sense of. Yeah, so, so the end result of FRAM is not really intended to be a nice, neat, useful diagram. Um, which really puts paid to this original theory of resonance. You can't use the final diagram for anything, but that's not really the point. And you can compare this, say, to a technique like stamp. So stamp, instead of having six vertices, really only has two things. Functions provide control to other functions, or they receive feedback from other functions. And so stamp diagrams look like nice, neat block diagrams with an arrow out and an arrow into each block, maybe connecting up a couple of layers. So you've got at most four things connecting to a block. Um, and there, the, fram, the diagram itself is supposed to be useful. Whereas FRAM, the whole point is it's this process of producing the diagram is supposed to be constructive and useful. So Drew, the paper, that, I think that's been a good introduction to talk about, you know, modelling work and, and modelling accidents and some of the, you know, the background and, and sort of other, other models out, you know, with, alongside FRAM. So the paper that we're going to talk about today is called Analyzing Human Factors and Non-Technical Skills in Offshore Drilling Operations Using FRAM. It was published in the Journal of Cognition Technology and Work in 2020. So CTW, it's a smaller journal than some of the big safety journals that we um, pull papers from more regularly on the podcast. This might even be the first paper that we've got out of Cognition Technology and Work, Drew. It focuses more on the human factors side of things. It's not always about safety, but a lot of safety stuff has gone there in the path and past and continues to go there. The paper's got four authors. The lead author is Josu Franca. Uh, the second author is uh, Eric Holnagel, as we've mentioned. The third author is Isaac Dos Santos. And the final author is Ased Haddad. Andrew, most of our listeners would have heard of Holnagel, who invented FRAM. So we can assume that his involvement, like you said, means that he agrees with the way that the model's been applied to this particular research. And the rest of the authors are from you know, various places around uh, Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. So, Drew, how common is that for a group of researchers to go to you know, someone who is, I suppose, responsible for the theory or the model they're trying to test and, and get them as a co-author. How does that process happen? It's it's pretty common for authors to try. It's l less common for the authors to be willing to help out. So if you imagine, you know, you invent this technique, it becomes popular. Every person and their dog who wants to apply the technique wants your approval and you know, the pat on the head that you've done it properly. It's interesting in this particular case, it seems that the way they used Eric and one of the other authors, I'm not sure which other author, is they actually used them as part of the research method that I'll talk about when we get into the method. So their role really was to verify and validate the application of the technique. 
Shall I go through the method of the paper? Yeah. How about you tell us about what the researchers did? So, so the paper overall, it's an ethnographic study of drilling unit operations called doghouse operations on three, three oil rigs off the coast of Brazil. Very much ethnographic. They collected the data over a period of six to nine months, was collected through onboard observations and with interviews. Some of the interviews they conducted on the oil rigs, others they grabbed the drillers when they came ashore. And the authors say that the interviews had just one question, which was, how do you perform your job? Now, David, I don't know about you, I actually run a class on interviewing where the trick is to keep someone talking for five minutes after asking one question. And most people can't do it. I refuse to believe that the interview really did just ask that one question. I think if you were in the um, control room on a, on a rig, and we'll talk about what that looks like and means in a minute, I think if you could asked how do you do your job and you were right there as it was being done, and you could just say, what are you doing now? What are you doing now? Why are you doing that? Why are you looking at that? Like you could definitely keep a conversation going for a long time. I think if you had a driller, and no offense to my driller colleagues, but I think if you had a driller in an interview room on shore just after they came off hitch or something and asked them that one question, the, the conversation would be done in about 30, 30 seconds. Yeah, possibly it was that one question asked many, many times over a couple of pints. <laughs> yeah, that might have helped. So the way FRAM comes in is not in the collecting of the data. It comes in the analysis. So we've mentioned in a few other episodes doing thematic analysis of data or phenomenological analysis of data. Now what we're doing is FRAM analysis of the data. So rather than trying to sort the data into themes or into phenomena, we're trying to take the things that are said and turn it into this map of the functions and how the functions link together. So the authors take the data, they produce an initial FRAM model, they then showed it to, they said, a local and an overseas FRAM expert, so presumably the overseas FRAM expert was Eric Holtnagel, and they showed it back to the drillers, and then if any of those people suggest any corrections, they made the corrections, then showed it back to everyone. They didn't actually say in the paper how many times they repeated that process. They just said that the process was repeated till everyone agreed that the model was a valid representation of the work. I think that's true. That's interesting asking a valid representation. I think the only opinion that really probably matters is the driller. Although, I mean, I suppose the FRAM experts have, you know, want to classify things correctly. But yeah, I don't think it's up to the, uh, the FRAM experts to decide if it's a valid representation of the work. I think their job is to say, has the uh, model been used in, a, in the way that it was you know, that it's meant to be used. Yes. And seriously, looking at the diagram that's in the paper, I imagine you show that to a driller, their immediate response is, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> so what's the point of doing all of this? Uh, so really, you know, why are we creating this big, complex, messy diagram? If you think about it, we create diagrams and representations of work all the time for all sorts of different reasons. Uh, so a procedure is a representation of work, a manual, a risk assessment, a plan, a training document, a position description. All those things that we sometimes call work as documented or work as imagined. They're all trying to create these artificial representations of the way work is done. And the purpose of doing this more complex frame analysis is to show that there's a lot of stuff that's in the work as it's done that isn't captured by any of the documents. And it's not irrelevant stuff. The stuff that's being missed out is actually vital for what creates the safety and productivity of the drilling operations. 
So, Drew, just before we dive into what the description of the activity, because I think that's really interesting, just to give our uh, listeners a bit of context for those who don't spend much time in the oil and gas industry. So what are the researchers looking at here when we're talking about an offshore rig and, you know, the the driller in the control room of the the drilling rig? So I've been fortunate to spend a bit of time on these rigs um, in this sort of an environment. So you're talking about a guy sitting in a room. He or she has got a whole bunch of screens that have got a whole bunch of data feeds and then a whole lot of controls. And, you know, for those listeners in the construction industry, you could think about this like the cab of a crane or for those in aviation, it might not be too dissimilar for a cockpit. You've got a whole bunch of AV type interfaces or or video display units. And then you've got a clear perspex screen with what you need to look at, whether it's your load on a crane or whether it's the sky in front of you in a plane. Or in this case, you're looking out at the rig floor and the drill string. So the rig floor is the the base of the rig. And then you've got the, the drill string that goes straight down through the middle of it. And so what, when we're going to talk about the activities drillers are doing, I just wanted to you know, help our listeners just try and have a, have a model in their head of what we're talking about. So, so David, do I understand correctly, these drillers that we're talking about, this person is not actually doing things like manually adding new segments to the drill string. That's happening out on the drill floor, but they're monitoring it and they're controlling the function of the drill while other people are doing the assembly and maintenance and adding in new sections and yeah very much so you've got a set of conveyors running which are bringing the um you know the drill string bits in and the the driller depending on the design of the drill rig uh the the driller is then maintaining the mud or the well fluids and the pressures and and is also maintaining the torque in the top drive which is obviously driving the drill string and then obviously then controlling you know, when people on the floor, maintaining the safe state of when people on the rig floor, if you like, or in the red zone, maintaining the safe state of the drill string and then making sure things are clear before drilling operations commence. So it really is the conductor of the whole drilling orchestra on, on board, but not, not you know, being there long enough to be sitting in an air-conditioned cabin and not getting dirty. So this diagram that they drew had, I think, 22 different functions represented on it. We won't go through all 22 but some of them are things that are like really obvious that you'd know are like core to the drilling operations. So control the drilling depth, control the drilling speed, control the mud pressure in the drilling fluid. And then there's a bunch of other functions which are monitoring functions that go along with that. So, you know, monitor the pressure instruments, monitor the screens, monitor the column weight, monitor the level of the drip tank, monitor the torque of the drill. And then there's functions that are exceptions or you know, disruptions. So have a new shift of drilling operators, manage malfunctions due to wear and tear, execute an emergency stop. And then some that are a little bit surprising because they're not really to do with the technical side of things, like keep awareness of the drilling floor activities. That's, you know, looking out the window at the drill floor. Experience pressure from supervision. Uh, Have trained and certified drillers. They've got to like upkeep their training while they're doing everything else. Uh, Recognize and manage relevant external noises recognize and manage relevant smell of hydrocarbons. And one of the things that the paper highlights is that the ability to recognize noises, smells, and vibrations, and to know what those things mean, is a key part of the job. But it isn't mentioned in any of the documented procedures or standards for drilling. I remember, Drew, I think um, quite a while ago, I was at a a gas plant, and it was a very mature field, and it was sort of the end of life of the plant. And there was operators on that site that had been there for 30 years, and it was my first visit to that site. And I was doing a site walk and with one of the supervisors. And at the time, he just said, hang on a minute, and just sort of left me, you know, standing in the middle of the gas plant and ran into the, or walked quickly into the control room. And when he came back, I was like, oh, what, 
what was going on? And all he'd done was heard a noise and he knew exactly what it was meant and he was racing in to let the control room know. Because, you know, over 30 years, the they had amassed such knowledge of the way the plant operated and some of the technical challenges they faced that depending on things like just the ambient air temperature, it would upset gas detection systems, it would disrupt the process, and they'd respond to, you know, wind conditions and temperature conditions. And you're right, Drew, this was things that the operators, uh, the experienced operators knew, was a core part of how they understood and monitored the safe state of the plant, but it wasn't something that anyone else outside, you know, the operators actually knew happened. So the paper for an ethnography is pretty light on when it comes to things like direct quotes, but the one that they do call out is related to this. I don't have the exact quote here, but it basically goes something like, you know, dude, I was just sort of chilling and you're watching what was going on on the floor and pretty relaxed. And then I smelt this smell of oil that wasn't supposed to be there. And I immediately knew that I had to take action or something bad was going to happen. And they said, you know, this wasn't just one story. This was like repeatedly all sorts of stories the drillers told them of times when, whether it was the floor vibrating or a particular noise or a particular smell that had triggered them to need to do something. Yeah, look, Drew, I think it was what you said earlier about monitor the smell of hydrocarbons. If, if you're a driller and you smell hydrocarbons, then you're in real trouble because um, you're actually not meant to have the hydrocarbons at the surface when you're drilling. Yeah, so actually, yeah, that, that wasn't directly clear from the paper whether this was... Um, it just said, you know, the smell of oil. Recognising that smell is obviously a bad sign. It might have been a pump then or um, something else, hydraulic fluid or something. So another thing that they mentioned is the role of all the other activities that are going on in the workload and the ability to perform all of the core functions correctly. And that's another thing that gets left out of the formal procedures is most procedures just sort of assume that the procedure is happening in isolation they you know, assume that you're not going to get interrupted or your attention is going to get demanded by other things. Whereas the frame analysis makes it clear that everything they do is going to be affected in terms of its time or its precision or its urgency by all of the other functions and other activities that are going on. Things that they're doing, things that other people are doing, things that the supervisor is doing, all affect their ability to do the core functions. And then the final one that stands out, which... I guess isn't a surprise because it always comes up in this sort of analysis is just how much disruption and variability were just a normal part of work. So they talk about equipment malfunctions and parts needing to be repaired, not as these exceptional events, but as just like an almost ever present routine part of doing the work is dealing with these disruptions, dealing with equipment that's not working, dealing with things not being perfect, but the job still needing to get done. Yeah, Drew, I think we talk about Performance variability is something that a lot of our listeners will think about performance variability, but at least I think about it as something that's just, you know, every single day, you know, no hour or no minute or no day is, is the same for people in, maybe for, for anyone really in any role. I know I just think about my day of what I think it's going to look like in the morning versus when I look back at the end of the day and what it's actually looked like, um, you know, it's very rarely gone the way that I thought it was going to go. And I think in all of these operational roles, I think thinking about them as sort of quite simple linear activities that that run 99% of the time in the same way is just not the right way for us to think about work. So David, getting back to the question for the episode, I'd like to get your opinion on a couple of things coming out of the paper about mostly related to, you know, is this sort of use of complex models worthwhile? Um, and so the first thing is I like your comment on the difficulty 
The, the authors suggest that this is actually not a particularly complex thing to do. They see you, you even though Fram looks good. Well, actually, they say any someone who's never seen a graphical representation of Fram, it might seem relatively complex. I'd say anyone who has seen a Fram model is going to get frightened away by the apparent complexity of the diagram. But they claim that it's not actually that complicated. It's really just a mutual understanding amongst professionals working as a team. So it's a complex discussion about a complex relationship, but it's actually done fairly simply. Would you agree with that? Do you think that this is something that anyone could do? Look, I think, well, I think it is. I mean, I, I mean, it's not as easy as teaching someone how to flowchart, I suppose, but you know, like you've got, you've got quite clear rules for how the model gets used. You've got functions inside and you've got states, and then you've got those six vertices with those relationships. So I think it could be done. It could be facilitated. There's no way you couldn't have a frame facilitator in the same way that people facilitate learning teams and other things. And it might not be a bad thing for an organization to have. What I like about the use of a FRAM model would be, I think it will allow organizations to narrow that gap between work as imagined and work as done. So if you if you think about using the FRAM model, I suppose, not to say, I'm going to write all my procedures and I'm going to paste a FRAM diagram in the front of my work procedures. I mean, that's not the thing I'd do. But I don't even know if I'd have work procedures anyway. But I think using a FRAM model as part of something like a learning team where you had, you know, supervisors and operators and safety professionals together trying to make sense of you know a particular activity i think it could be better than than other you know modeling tools that are available and what do you reckon is the practical benefit in trying to do the modeling i think what you i think there's a couple most of the benefits are probably more to the organization than to the operator because the operator's got a view of that role that's far more nuanced and complex than any frame representation you could do. So I think you've got to think of that model as more useful to the roles in the organization that support or constrain that operator from or that driller in this instance from doing that job. So if the supervisor and the manager and the safety professional gets a, gets a better understanding of the work and the challenges, then that might just change the you know support and conditions in the organization to, you know, help that driller a bit more to be successful in their work. So I don't think I don't think the model helps the operator in a direct way, but in an indirect way, it just might help the organizational conditions around their, their work. And, and I think a big part of that is the communication that goes on in the creation of the model. So it's important not to consider that the model itself is an adequate representation of the real complexity or is an end in its own right. Um, and I think sometimes researchers lose track of that. The researchers sort of do a frame model and they say like, yeah, aha, we've done a frame model, aren't we clever? And this paper almost does that, but you know, it actually thinks its research question is, how do you do a frame model of this system? And it really isn't. You know, the research question is just, what do the drillers do? which is an interesting and useful and valuable question to ask and answer and to have those conversations. Uh, it's not the production of the frame model that is the end result or that is the achievement. And I think what I like with a question like that, what do drillers do, is, you know, the object of understanding is the work. You know, they haven't come in and gone, how do drillers keep something safe or, or whatever? They're actually starting with understanding the work and then they can understand what the implications of that work might be for safety. Or parts of their model. So, you know, I think it, I think the research was was quite well done. I think it's an interesting question. I think um, the Fram, you know, the discussion about Fram, I think for our listeners has hopefully been a little bit helpful in them thinking that there are other there are options out there for them to model work. And so, Drew, if if our listeners are thinking about, oh, I 
you know, I know about Fram or I don't know about Fram. I'm going to go and look at this tool a little bit more. What would be your practical takeaways? So I think the very first one is that there's genuine value for workers and management and safety in co-creating new descriptions of work. Uh, not with the object being that new description. So we're not talking about, you know, like having workers involved in writing procedures where the sort of end thing is having a documented procedure. We're talking about having that sophisticated, complex discussion around what really goes into work so that everyone comes away with a better understanding of other people's jobs. And David, as you said before, so that management and safety are more likely to put in place solutions and help that genuinely helps the workers because they understand what the job is like. Second practical takeaway I'd say is that it's important when we select our methods in safety that we don't pick methods which strip away the complexity and the messy details. So you hear people sometimes claim, oh, safety is simple, we don't need to overcomplicate it. And work is already complex. We're not overcomplicating things when we use methods that are capable of embracing that complexity and helping us to understand it. The complexity is there. The safety is not simple. The safety is hidden from a lot of our simplistic representations. And yet, the sort of final message I'd put in there is just you ask yourself whether a JSA or a risk matrix would have captured the importance of having a good nose for smells. That's what this method can offer you is understanding why having a sense of smell is important. Yeah, I think they're good takeaways, Drew. And I think, um, you know, we're not talking about creating more complex complex prescriptions of work through procedures what we're talking about is you know potentially a tool to model an activity or or a role in an organization that might help narrow that gap between you know work as imagined and work as done so that we can create the conditions for the work as done to be um, supported by the organization more of the time Andrew, the other thing that we might like to know from our listeners i think is quite simply if if any of our listeners have used uh in the past or are using in their organization frame or or Nancy Levison stamp models? Are you using it to model work? Are you using it as part of your incident investigations? You know, what do you think? You know, what's your experience with those models and, and what would you offer our other listeners in terms of advice around that? Uh, so this week we asked the question, why do we need complex models to explain simple work? And I, I think the answer here is that, at least in this case of drilling, that work is never simple. Even something which seems like a fairly straightforward mundane job there are always interesting and complex things to discover. And those are things that matter for safety. That's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Leave us a review on your podcast feed. Uh, Drop us a comment on our LinkedIn page or send any other questions or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 